name, this symbol of our worldwide liberal religious faith, we lift up our chalice this morning for the hidden treasures of life. Hidden treasures of life, what does that spark off in anyone this morning? Serendipity. Ordinary angels. Ordinary angels. Music. Music. Talents. Talents. Surprise. Surprise. Hope. Hope. Dreams. Dreams. Gifts. Gifts. Nature. Nature. A smile. A smile. Laughter. Laughter. Tearing down the walls inside my own head. Tearing down the walls inside <coughs> of my own head. Wisdom. Wisdom. Feeling. Feelings. Cuddles. Cuddles. Friendship. Friendships. Unexpected. Unexpected. Synchronicity. Synchronicity. Wounded heart. Wounded heart. Waking up. Waking up. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been a little bit of a theme of the whole week, really, hasn't it? And a great way to wake up is to sing. And, everybody complains about the state of ministry training in this <laughs> Well, and for some people, this is new. Uh, so, what we're going to do is hear it played through first. It's, um, we're going to sit at the welcome table, okay. which is towards the end. Nick's going to play it through first of all. Then, we're going to have a stab at the first one. Then, we're going to go back and do first one again. So, we can do it full rounds in the voice. So, we'll hear the Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, darn name. We've got that issue. 
the words are fairly simple, so you perhaps don't need to be like this with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to... I know, it's a, it's a lot to ask. Uh, first thing in the morning, but you might even put your book down. Just <laughs> 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 something like, oh, and there's the old Anansi story in which Anansi gets a pot of wisdom and climbs to the top of the tree. His son bothers him, and so he throws it down at him. I mean, that's the total of the story that I told yesterday. So just, just <laughs> fair warning to those of you who think, oh, good, I'll have something for Sunday. Um, 
It may, it may be a, a little more tricky than, than that. This story is about a barnyard. Well, it's about what rolled into a barnyard one morning, actually. No one knows quite where it came from, but there in the middle of the barnyard, one fine Sunday morning, there was an egg. Now, it wasn't like any of the eggs that were around. There were, you know, there were plenty of chickens around, and this egg was a, a lot bigger, and it looked different. And, and there were some geese, and there were some ducks, but, but this egg was completely different than that. The hens in the barnyard, who are this sort of creature, came over and took a great deal of interest in it. Hens particularly like eggs, just in case you didn't know that about them. And they, they felt sad for the egg, the, the lost and kind of forlorn egg sitting in the middle of the barnyard. And so with their beaks and their little, little skinny, scrawny legs, they, they, they nudged it all the way across the barnyard. <laughs> all of them together, working to take it into where they were brooding their own eggs. And they sat on the egg. They took turns, because it turned out that this egg took a long time to, to come to birth. When it finally did, the creature that came out of it didn't look like a chicken, didn't look like a goose, didn't look lo much like a, a, a duck either. They weren't quite sure what it was, but the chickens who had sat on the egg decided to raise it as if it were their own. And so even though the creature's feet weren't very well suited for scratching, still they taught it to scratch. Its beak didn't look anything like their beaks, but it did learn eventually how to peck seed didn't really like the seed very much, ate it, just wasn't very good. But it was alive, and it was held in love by the chickens and all the baby chicks, who were not nearly the same size. Now, as this creature grew and became bigger and more interesting, much different from anyone around, they tried to think where it might have come from. There was a wood nearby, and they went into the wood, took this creature along, this chick that was not a chick, along with them into the woods. And they looked about for what might be there in the woods that might be related to it. What do you think? Anybody think of something you might see in the woods that was related to this creature? A bird of some sort. What kinds of birds, maybe? Something in a tree. A what? An owl or a pheasant? They asked it, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mention owls because they did see one. Um, it, was, it was asleep uh, up, in the, up in the tree. And, it, and, and it, it didn't really look like this creature, unfortunately. And as it happens, they went along a bit further and some pheasants flew past. And the chickens admired the beauty of the pheasants, but this was not a pheasant. So where else might they take? Oh, a vulture. Now that's an interesting thought. It happens that there was a vulture flying by. It's astonishing to me that you that this happened. There was a vulture nearby, and, and they looked very carefully at it. 
But this creature didn't have the long neck and the, 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 the kind of beak. It still wasn't quite a vulture. So they decided to leave the wood. And they, they, they went along. Now, this took an incredibly long time. Chickens don't walk fast, and they don't fly very well. So it did take quite a long time for them to walk out of the wood. Where else might they have gone after they left the wood? Can you think of a place? Mountains. Mountains. You know, there weren't any nearby, and it really was... It's really hard for chickens to get up mountains. A meadow. <laughs> so they came into a meadow. You guys are really good at this. So they did. They came to a meadow. They came to a meadow. And they looked around, and, and, and they tried to see if there was something there. Anything that they might have seen there? Curlew. A curlew. There was one. <laughs> but it wasn't a curlew. They continued on for a ways, and they came to a, a, a lake. A, a, a really vast lake. And there on the, on, the, on the edge of the lake, they stood. And the creature, you know, he, he'd been coming along on this, and he wasn't quite sure what he was looking for. He, he didn't quite know. He, he waited to see what he might find, if there was someone out there, something out there, that looked familiar to him. And at the edge of the lake, indeed, he looked in, and puzzled about this face that was so different from all the other faces that he saw. The chickens began to squawk loudly and began to scatter away, running as fast as they could, trying to find cover. Or high above, there was a bird that was beginning to circle. And it was circling and hunting. It was an eagle. It had come to fish, but the chickens were simply afraid by the large wings that were overhead. The little creature looked up and knew that he too was destined for the sky. He'd never looked up at the sky in this way before. And reaching behind him, he lifted up his wings never having known that he could reach out in this way before. And watching the creature with great swooping movements, he began to move with the creature that was high in the sky and felt himself lift up. And faltering up into the sky he went. And he knew at that moment that though he had the love that had brought him to life. His true place was in the sky, for he too was evil. And that's our story today. What a story. And we are rightly warmed up, I think, now to proceed with my vision, which is that we will sing, let your little light shine, and turn it into an improvisation where you can sing whatever you want, any notes, any words, any strange sounds, and then miraculously, it will all come back together at the end. Again, remember, no one else is listening to us, we're alone here. <laughs> so let your little light shine, 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 let your little light shine on.
good to breathe, isn't it? Hmm, and to stretch. If, if you ever want to pick up a sense of what's important in British national life, you can do worse than immerse yourself in the world of the archers. A long-running radio programme set in the village of Ambridge. Now, they don't generally do politics in Ambridge, but religion, whoa, religion, makes a regular appearance. When Alan, the Anglican vicar, married his Hindu girlfriend, Usha, last year, friendships were severed. And Usha's one-time friend, Shula, started worshipping at the cathedral in the nearby town. So shocked were her religious sensibilities by this two-faith marriage. Now, Alan and Usha are having a holiday at home this year, camping on the vicarage lawn to highlight the plight of refugees the world over. <laughs> okay, you're almost up to date. <laughs> Meanwhile... <laughs> <laughs> and in a nearby field, the older Grundies. And I mean, I'm sorry just to do this very quickly for those of us who love the archers. Isn't it fabulous that there's the younger Grundies too, and it'll go on forevermore, long after we have left this planet? Isn't that a deliciously comforting feeling? But meanwhile, in a nearby field, the older Grundies, Joe and his son Eddie, were recently busy playing with their new toy a metal detector. The Grundies, who don't know, for those of you who don't know, lost their tenant farm some years ago, and there is something so satisfying in their search for hidden treasure in fields they once farmed. Now, those of you who've lived abroad, is it only the British who buy those strange metal detectors <laughs> and spend their weekends combing beaches and fields looking for that exciting beeping that will tell them that metal lies below? Imagine the excitement of starting to dig down beneath the surface, unsure what you will find, but oh, hopeful, oh, so hopeful. And if that doesn't appeal to you, Think of this, perhaps, as an image for today. Um, see if this talks to you. You're about to go out. You placed an important item down for a moment, and now it has disappeared from view. Car keys, a file of documents, your wallet or purse, your glasses... You know, the ones that turn up on your head ten minutes later when you just happen to pass a mirror. It is remarkable, I think, how quickly something can disappear. And I've come to think that the search for those said lost items and the joy, if and when you find them, has a kind of archetypal resonance for us. In losing and hopefully finding things, we're linked in a mythic pattern that Jung called an archetype, where our individual story is resonating with something very deep within the collective unconscious. Now, people are sometimes a bit sneery about media studies, aren't they, as an academic discipline. It's, it's regarded as a bit lightweight, which is a shame, 
I think, because we're badly in need, I reckon, of a society of media awareness. I think when media studies are linked with the study of culture, well, there are gems to be found. For example, the studies that reflected on the British and indeed world outpouring of grief after the death of Diana, they were really valuable efforts to understand a very strange phenomenon. The death of a princess, the wicked mother-in-law, the heartless prince, the motherless princes. So many fairy tale elements were there. Even Tony Blair got into the story as the brave knight who rode in and resolved the funeral dilemma. The death of someone still young and very much in the media eye is clearly newsworthy. But was that unprecedented public distress caused by the, the media itself? Or is, is it something deeper? I mean, how the, how the media report news stories of lost children can also be analysed as an example of the use of archetypes, of, of tapping into the collective unconscious where imagery is shared. And of course, in this realm, there are goodies and baddies. There are rumours and counter-rumours, there are secrets and there are revelations. When challenged as to their reasons for devoting so many column inches to the repetitive reporting of the loss of one child, newspaper editors explain that it's because the public want to know. There is an insatiable yearning for more, more, more. Perhaps because that lost child motif touches something terribly deep within us. On some level, are we all lost children? Children who yearn to be found, to be recognised, to be understood. Children who yearn to return to a state of innocence and infinite potential. So no wonder then, I think, that they, the spiritual teachings, which remind us to be as children, to return to that state of openness and curiosity, are so very appealing to us, the, the beginner's or baby's mind. Or, unless you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, John Bunyan's celestial city, there's something otherworldly as well as this earth, about the pilgrim's destination. And when we reach a destination of this kind, be it spiritual or in the material realm, it's customary to make an offering. Here is the tradition that has us leave little gifts tied into trees at holy wells or throw coins into sacred water itself. We're giving thanks for safe arrival and something deeper of ourselves. As the Talmud said, God wants the heart. A pilgrim's journey, when so much has been lost and let go of along the way, ultimately is completed by the laying down of the self that we've carried with us thus far. That shedding of old identity so that new can emerge once more. It's, I've been really touched as the week's gone on by the people who've come to journey with me's stories and this, this theme of identity and labels that comes back again and again and again. It's clearly an important, 
important issue on this journey of life for us all. And so today I've asked <coughs> David Darling, who's a member of uh, Kensington Unitarians, to speak of some aspects of his life journey. Good morning. I think I do have to put my glasses on. <laughs> Uh, Sarah asked me to share with you some of the spiritual or religious transitions in my life uh, that were caused by my desire to live a life of integrity and authenticity. I hasten to add it's still a work in progress. It's not a completely integrated life. But before I do that, I'd like to share with you the chalice-lighting prayer that we've been using each morning in my engagement group. It says this. The elements of fire represents passion, veracity, authenticity and vitality. If the chalice is the supporting structure of Unitarianism, then we are the flame. We are the flame fanned strong by our passion for freedom, our yearning for truth-telling, our daring to be authentic with one another, and the vitality we sustain in our meeting together. In all of this, there is love. It is this passion for freedom, yearning for truth-telling, and daring to be authentic that has caused problems in my life and caused the various shifts in my spiritual journey. And so I'm pleased that six years ago I discovered the supporting structure of Unitarianism that allows my flame to continue to burn. I know I sometimes just produce hot air, but hopefully occasionally sometimes. My parents were and are religious liberals. They're now members of Essex Church. And I was brought up in a home where God was very much part of the family. But what we meant by God was never actually explained. My parents were firm believers in orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy, though they might never have put it into those words. I was brought up in a spirit of I've missed that out. <laughs> I told you it was about hot air. I thought, I'm sure there's a bit that kind of ties into that. Anyway, so just skip back a little bit, um, because it ties in with it. St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, of uh, which I was a member for a very brief period on my rather convoluted journey, said, give me a child until he is seven and then I care not who has him thereafter. Well, unfortunately, St. Ignatius, or perhaps fortunately, St. Ignatius didn't get me in my first seven years, or a few years after that, because they were in the liberal setting of Scottish Presbyterianism. Yes, there is a liberal strand in Scottish Presbyterianism. And then there was a bit about my parents, right? You've, you've heard that bit. I was brought up in a spirit of openness, respect and inclusiveness. There wasn't much opportunity for interfaith dialogue in the small town that I grew up in just south of Edinburgh. But there were strong divisions between 
Christian denominations, especially between Catholics and Protestants. And I was taught that I had to respect all who were seeking after truth. And this acknowledgement of the need for inclusivity stretched beyond the confines of religion. Perhaps surprisingly for 1960s Scotland, I remember overhearing my mother say to a friend, I don't know why Heather is marrying John. She would have been much happier staying with Mary. (laughs) And of their friend Bill, who in the 1940s would go into Edinburgh to drag balls in full drag on the bus. It's not just today that we're liberated. And added to this mix of liberality was the Scottish hatred of hierarchy and love of democracy, which at its best celebrates the equality of all men and women, and at its worst, worst prevents anyone from getting above themselves. So this is the rock from which I was hewn, and reflecting on it helps me to understand why, though drawn to conservative hierarchical organisations, I never quite fitted in. For, odd as it may seem, this liberal, inclusive childhood led me to knock at the door of the Catholic Presbytery in Cambridge, aged 15, and say, I want to become a Catholic. I had felt drawn to Roman Catholicism as a child in Scotland. It was something to do with the worship, worship with the senses rather than the mind, and because it was a religion of the outsider, the marginalised. But to convert to Roman Catholicism in 1960s Scotland was almost impossible. Think becoming a Muslim today. It didn't just mean changing churches. It would also have included changing schools, being shunned by some of my family, and becoming part of a very different social scene. So I put the idea on hold. But when I was 13, my family moved from Scotland to Cambridge, where religion was very different, and people didn't much care about which church you went to. I began to read and explore about Catholicism. I know, I must have been a bit of an odd child, really. (laughs) Sad, really. Things haven't changed much. So aged 15, I was received into the Roman Catholic Church, but not blindly accepting everything. I remember arguing with a priest about the church's attitude to homosexuality, not aware at that time that it had anything to do with me, and concluding the argument by saying, oh, well, we'll just have to disagree. And despite my slight hereticism, I was accepted to train as a priest with the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. It was was early in the 1970s, an exciting time in the Roman Catholic Church. The spirit of democracy was in the air, and there was a real desire for sharing authentic experiences rather than just believing what Father said. As part of my training with the Jesuits, I had to do a 30-day retreat in total silence, 
five hours of formal meditation a day based on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Now today, these are run as flexible periods of growth, of sharing authentic experiences. But in 1975, you just got stuck with the book. If the book said you had to meditate on hell, you meditated on hell. If the book said heaven, you meditated on heaven. I was 19 and had just come back from a three-month trip to India where I'd been working with Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity, caring for the sick and dying. I was emotionally and physically a wreck. I had experienced heaven and hell in reality. Now I had to do it from a book. I felt as though I was being forced to play a part in a play when what I wanted to do was engage in real life. And so I left. It was one of the worst days of my life. All I had ever wanted, all I had ever dreamed about, being a priest, was gone. I returned to Cambridge, where I took a temporary job as a nursing assistant in a psychiatric hospital. That temporary job went on for about the next 30 years, off and on. I trained as a psychiatric nurse, uh, then as a general nurse. I eventually acknowledged to myself and others that I was gay. I met another man and we set up home together. Although I had belonged to a, a Catholic gay group, I began to see that I would never be totally welcomed in the Catholic Church. And so, strange as it may seem now, in 1985 I became an Anglican. For the Church of England of the 1980s was a much more open and theologically liberal church than it is today. It was also at this time that I realised that I had to be true not only to my, my sexuality, but also to my spirituality. And I had a sense of calling again to the religious life. The parish that I worshipped in in Cambridge was run by the Society of St Francis, a Franciscan community within the Church of England. Looking back now over 20, over 20 years, I realise there were a lots of mixed, emo, sorry, mixed motives for why I joined the religious life. But at the time, I thought it's what God wanted. And so, in October 1988, I left my partner of eight years and moved to the Friary of St. Francis in Dorset. There were moments of doubt and struggle, but in the whole, on the whole, it seemed to be the right place for me to be, the place that I could flourish as a spiritual man and as a human being. I spent a year in Liverpool when I was able to nurse again, then a year at the monastic house of prayer in Worcestershire that I endured, and was then sent to Edinburgh, home again, to a friary that was a, that was a flat above a Chinese restaurant in the heart of the city. And one of the previous brothers uh, had named the friary the Little Portion. <laughs> there is a Franciscan reason for that, but it was very apt for a Chinese restaurant. 
I wrote about this experience somewhere else and said, this was a wonderful time for me because we weren't trying to be Franciscans. We were trying to live ordinary lives of simplicity, prayer and hospitality inspired by St. Francis of Assisi. But Edinburgh, for those who know it, is quite a small place. Someone once said, it's not so much a small town, or a large drawing room. <laughs> but because it's small, you have to be real. You can't live a double life. The people we worked with knew us, warts and all, and on the whole, loved us, warts and all. In Edinburgh, I was able to get back to the margin. For the Anglican Church in Scotland, the Episcopal Church, is very small, only about 1% of the population. I worked again as a district nurse, mainly with an HIV caseload, and then spent four years as a prison chaplain, very much ministry to the cut, those cut off from society. And on the whole, I was happy, concerned more with doing than believing. Well, I was concerned a bit with believing because it was also at that time in Edinburgh that I went to theological college and was ordained. But on the whole, the Scottish Episcopal Church has a, a liberal and open theology. It's a good old-fashioned Anglo-Catholic ritual and good modern liberal theology. And I was ordained by Richard Holloway, perhaps one of the most liberal bishops in the Episcopal Church. He, um, the last time I saw Richard was uh, actually at Hampstead Unitarian Church where he was giving a talk. And I said to him, you must be a very spiritual man, Father. I said, when you laid hands on me at my ordination, you passed on your atheism. <laughs> he smiled. But then disaster struck. I was sent back to England. <laughs> to a very beautiful house in Almouth in Northumberland that we ran as a retreat house. One of my fellow brothers described it as a religious theme park where the brothers were the brown coats. <laughs> I felt like I was a, a bit part player in a costume drama. But what scared me was that I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> then more disaster. I was appointed as the novice guardian the guy responsible for recruiting, selecting and training men who wanted to join the order. I went from being at the edge of the order, happy in my orthopraxy, to right bang in the centre, charged with teaching orthodoxy. I also had to move to the monastery in Worcestershire that I had hated as a novice. And my job was to enthuse the novices who were coming in. This was probably one of the worst and loneliest times in my religious life. I was struggling to teach things that I was no longer sure I believed in. Most of my positive experience at that time was supporting the novices who were struggling and helping, helping them to question the religious life and remain true to their own real selves. Eventually, I knew I had to make a decision. I could continue to play the part, 
have a fairly secure life and carry on to old age. I've never preached a sermon that I didn't believe in, at least at the time, but I was getting pretty close to it. And I knew that if I was to be true to my roots, then I had to leave the order, leave the Church of England, and probably Christianity. The stories that had nourished me no longer spoke to me with an authentic voice. I remember looking out of the monastery window one day thinking, will I be able to do a proper job again? I was nearly 50, but I knew that being unemployed, living in a grotty bedsit, was better than living a lie. So I resigned from my post as novice guardian and moved to a friary in North London where I could explore what to do next. It was at this time that I discovered Unitarianism and Essex Church and realised that there was a community in which I could continue my spiritual journey with integrity and authenticity and could even re-explore my liberal Christian roots. Jim Corrigal on Monday, quoting Eliot, spoke about returning to where you started and discovering it for the first time. St Ignatius of Loyola didn't get me as a child, but liberal religion did. And it has challenged me throughout all my varied ramblings to be true to myself and to live with integrity, whatever the cost. So let's remember that if the chalice is the supporting structure of Unitarianism, then we are the flame. Let us fan that flame with our passion for freedom, our yearning for truth-telling, and our daring to be authentic with one another. Just take a moment in silence now. themes to pick up on, but just perhaps a few for you to think about on your own for a moment or two and then to move into conversation with another. The theme of authenticity, of being true to ourselves. I wonder when that theme has, has been particularly strong in your life. It brought you to turning points. And that theme of the religious and spiritual journey 
that we're on. I wonder how your own journey has moved and meandered and turned back to the beginning, perhaps. question that I think haunts us all really of how do we know when a change needs to be made using those as themes or anything else that comes to you, I invite you now to find uh, another person and to converse with one another for nearly ten minutes, just before, just before ten. <laughs> or just wriggle or just check how you're doing physically. Not long till coffee. <laughs> but quite a bit to explore. <laughs> The, the um, Chinese sage Lao Tzu, um, I, love, I love this saying, because I can almost imagine someone looking how I imagine him to look, saying it to me. Keeping to the main path, keeping to the main path is easy, but people, oh, people love to be sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you. But I think sometimes when we look back over our meandering journeys in life, even the, the cul-de-sacs, those dead ends, and those terrible times that if you've ever driven on foreign roads, you know when you just keep going round and round the roundabout because you really don't commit yourself to any one of the possible exits, safer to just keep going round and round, or rather round and round. <laughs> You're going that way round, trouble in the head. But in the, in the mythic journey, the, the stage of revelation is where things hopefully start to make sense. The key to that treasure chest may finally be found. It's hidden place unlocked by the solving of a riddle. A, a riddle. The actual treasure chest may be opened and the treasure inside may be there for you. 
you may manage to pick up that golden goose that lays the golden eggs. Answers are revealed. That which was lost is found. Travellers are united. And there may be a meeting or indeed a marriage. Now the ancient and secret tradition of alchemy, much, much studied by Jung, and far deeper than the idea of it that we now have in common parlance today of, of the search, the alchemist's search to turn base metal into gold. Now, alchemy was was a, a, a esoteric tradition that um, you know, was available to very, very few in any society. But in alchemy, it was taught that the, the priceless treasure of the mythic realm lies within our own human nature. It's unrecognized perhaps, it's despised or neglected. And then the spiritual task is to bring that treasure back from its buried state into conscious awareness and bring about wholeness, completeness, integration. That found aspect of the self that you'd lost and perhaps you knew that you'd lost it or more often, you didn't even know it existed within you. This is becoming the true self, that know thyself injunction of the Delphic Oracle. I've been reading lots of um, fairy stories this week and um, uh, wanting to leave the telling of stories to Linda, so all I'm doing is fragments, but I tell you, there was one I found only yesterday of the, the warrior who's had to go to the dangerous castle in order to rescue the princess. And when he gets in there with his sword raised, he is faced by a thousand warriors who have their swords raised too. And as he moves forward, they move forward towards him. And when in terror he moves back, they too move back. It's only after lots of this toing and froing does he actually discover a fragment of glass on the ground that turns out to be mirrored. And when he picks it up, he realizes that the thousand warriors are aspects of himself. There's no one to fight but him. So many stories have that element within them. Now, in the stage of revelation, there may not be wondrous visions of the kind that we have given to us in Hebrew scriptures, perhaps. There might not really be great discoveries of that golden egg-laying goose. There might not be trumpet fanfares. Our revelations and hidden treasures may be actually small. They might at first be unnoticeable. And they may even be difficult. Perhaps they are the, the more negative revelations of some theologies. But they are our revelations and our discoveries and they are important. I'm going to end with a, a poem by Kabir, the Indian mystic, who was able to transcend faith divisions and whose poetry is revered by Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs. And he speaks of that yearning in us to find something other than ourselves, that sense of incompletion that hopes that something external can fill our neediness. I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? 
There are no travellers on the river road, and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank or resting? There is no river at all, and no boat, and no boatman. There is no tow rope either, and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford, and there is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this. Just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Where do we need to be? Look down at our feet. How will we get to the coffee tray? By walking. <laughs> One step at a time. Farewell. <laughs>